his word is to be read in context with the rest of the Bible. So let's flick to Romans 1:18. The wrath of God is being revealed from heaven against all the godlessness and wickedness of people who suppress the truth by their wickedness, since what may be known about God is plain to them because God has made it plain to them. For since the creation of the world, God's invisible qualities, his eternal power and divine nature have been clearly seen, being understood from what has been made so that people are without excuse. For although they knew God, they neither glorified him as God nor gave thanks to him, but their thinking became futile and their foolish hearts were darkened. Although they claimed to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images made to look like mortal human being and birds and animals and reptiles. Therefore, God gave them over in the sinful desires of their hearts to sexual impurity for the degrading of their bodies with one another. They exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served created things rather than the creator who is forever praised. Amen. Because of this, God gave them over to shameful lusts. Even their women exchanged natural sexual relations for unnatural ones. In the same way, the men also abandoned natural relations with women and were inflamed with lusts for one another. Men committed shameful acts with other men and received in themselves the due penalty for their error. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave, gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not to be done. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous degree, decree that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but also approve of those who practice them. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, so we're doing this, if you're new, uh, a series in Romans, it's called The Tapestry of Grace. And we're going to see throughout Romans, the book of Romans, week by week, how uh, the author, Paul, who's writing it for us, uh, shows us how God's grace has been at work throughout history, a tapestry of grace. And that's what we're going to do. And today we're in talk two, so we're in the second week uh, of our series, and we're going to get into it now. So I need God's help. We all need God's help to understand this passage. Uh, so let's pray and ask him for help. Father, we do uh, come before you, helpless and in need of your wisdom, of your grace. And today, Lord, as we uh, tackle this uh, tough topic, we'll um, yeah, be reminded that you are a God who is loving, a God who invites us to know you, a God who uh, wants us to know that there is freedom and redemption and salvation in your name. And so we do pray, Lord, that this uh, talk will... Um, be helpful, and may you speak to us through it, in Jesus' name, amen. 
How often uh, do people come to you and they say to you, do you, want the, do you want the good news first or the bad news? It happens a lot, doesn't it? Can I ask you a question? Uh, who usually, when someone asks you that question, who wants the good news first? Who wants the bad news first? Wow. Right? So the majority of people, so the first, I mean, the few that ask for the good news first, why do you want the good news first? Can I just ask? Curious. Don't know? Just start off well and then be brought down. Right. But most of us want to start, you know, oh, I want to hear the bad news and then, you know, hear the good news. Yay. Something to celebrate. Like, it's, it's funny, isn't it, that for most of us in the room, the bad news needs to come first. The bad news needs to come first before we hear the good news, so then we can celebrate, we can finish on a good note. Isn't that true? Right? And so remember last year during uh, when COVID hit, when the pandemic uh, hit, uh, there was just bad news after bad news. And so what happened, uh, if you remember, if you were online a lot during that time, which most of us were, uh, on YouTube, there was a show that was released called Some Good News. It was uh, this show. I don't know, did anyone watch it? It, was, it went viral a few times with some of the episodes. John Krasinski, he was an actor from The Office. He went on to YouTube, created this show called Some Good News because he just wanted to bring good news to everyone. He wanted uh, everyone to know that even though there's all this bad news out there, there's still some good in the world. That's what he wanted to do. Now, now most people have forgotten about that show. It just you know, died down after a few months. Um, but it's really interesting. I wonder if this idea of some good news, I wonder if it would have been successful I wonder if it would have been relevant if it wasn't during a pandemic. Why would, th- why would anyone bother tuning into this when life is just going on normal? We need the bad news to hear the good news, right? It wouldn't have as much punch or relevance. Think about this. Good news is good news when we realize there is bad news out there. Pretty straightforward, right? Captain Obvious is here. Right, the couple uh, who have, for example, been trying for many years and they get pregnant. Good news. Or the unemployed person who's been struggling financially to, to, to find a job and, and finally lands that job, it's good news. And we celebrate because we know the bad news. The months and years, it's, there's only been bad news. We need to understand the depth of the bad news for us to understand the magnitude of the good news. It makes sense, right? You know what, for us here today, as we think about Christianity and our faith, Uh, If we don't understand the bad news, then will we truly appreciate Jesus for who he is and what he's done in the gospel, in the good news for us? That's what the gospel means. It means good news. So what is the bad news? Today, things are going to get a bit spicy. It's going to get a bit heavy. It's very heavy. But we're going to talk about the topic of sin. (laughs) Surprise. I mean, if you're new with us, you came on this week. But it's part of the gospel. It's part of the good news, to know the bad news. And it's been there, part of the fabric of, of humankind, part of the tapestry. It's been there since after creation. Uh, today, the tapestry for us is going to look a bit torn, a bit messy, but we need to see this before we can see the beautiful, greater tapestry of grace that God has created in history that's going to come in, in following weeks in Romans. Now, talking about sin shouldn't come as a surprise. We are a church, right? And sin comes up in church. Uh, every faith or religion or, uh, will admit right, there's something wrong with the world. Even those who will identify as an atheist, they can see that there is something wrong with the world. The difficult part when it comes to sin is that no one wants to face their own sin or face that we're part of the problem in this world. It's never comfortable to confront that we ourselves have sin in our hearts. But we're going to unpack what that means today here in the Bible. Now, let me quickly say this. Providence here, this church, we take the word of God, the Bible, seriously. And we believe that it is our supreme authority in life. It's how God speaks to us. And 
And we believe, even though it m might be something that was written over 2,000 years ago, whatever, it's an ancient text, it's still so relevant today because it speaks about our human nature and it speaks about God's character as revealed to us in the gospel of Jesus. And so before we address this problem, let's get into our Bibles. Open up your Bibles so you can follow along with me because it's so important to understand what is going on in this passage. Eunice read from verse 18. I'm going to read from verse 16 so you can understand what's going on before verse 18 comes in. Verse 16, have your Bibles, you can follow along. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in, the, in it, the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith. As it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Right? Paul's talking about the gospel, the good news, that we are saved by Jesus alone, that we can't earn our righteousness, but righteousness has been transferred to us by faith in him. Now, understanding that idea first is necessary before we turn to verse 18, because how does verse 18 start? It says, for, right? Another way, word of saying is because, because, verse 18, because the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men, who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. We have to talk about the wrath of God. We have to talk about his anger. See, if we don't understand why we need to be saved, then the gospel, the good news, won't, it won't empower us, will it? It won't excite us. It won't move us to live for God if we don't know why the gospel is good news and such a wonderful gift and treasure that we absolutely need. Paul wants everyone who's reading to know the, the flip side of the saving, loving righteousness of God by first setting out why God has reasonable grounds to, to be angry for, for his wrath, that we need to be saved from it. Now, 100% God is love, right? We hear that throughout the Bible many times. But also, we need to understand that God, the God who is love, is also a God who has anger and wrath that is shaped by love. I think every, every parent can, can relate to this. If you have children, you know that you love them, but there are times you know, you'll discipline in love, and that will show itself <laughs> sometimes in anger. We can't dismiss this characteristic of God. So many people will say, I don't believe, I don't believe God is an angry God. He's loving. And so... And so he's okay with whatever I do. But do you think God is okay with whatever? Honestly. That he's okay with, with the man who takes little girls and brings them into slavery? Is God okay with that? Is God okay when the rich and the greedy are not generous to the poor around them? Is God okay when there's genocide and hatred and violence in his creation? Wouldn't your, would you be angry if your creation was so far away, so, had strayed so far away from how you intended it to be? You see, here in this section, he's building this case how the brokenness in the world is seen in humanity who have turned themselves away from God. And right, he's writing this to the Romans, the Christians in Rome, some who are Jewish background. He's making a reference in this section about people who don't worship God. Okay? So uh, as we know it, uh, in, in, I guess in Bible terms, they're called Gentiles, those who aren't of uh, a Christian faith. But here specifically, the term could also be pagans, right? Pagans, those who are, aren't religious, who, who don't worship the God of the Bible. And he does this cultural analysis, essentially. He's doing this cultural analysis to help the church understand the foundation of why the gospel is such good news. Because here's the bad news. Humanity is deserving of God's wrath. Humanity is deserving it because of what he says, our ungodliness and unrighteousness. As Christians, we know this as sin, don't we? We know this as sin, and Paul is here is building his case of what sin looks like. He says, we've cut off our relationship with God through suppressing the truth about him. 
we know what suppressing the truth looks like in life, don't we? What, uh, think of some examples. Uh, when might that happen when you might suppress the truth? Uh, for, uh, the first one that came to mind when I was thinking about this is maybe recently you've been diagnosed with high cholesterol. And, uh, <laughs> and the thing about having high cholesterol, Tim, is you don't see it. Or you don't, <laughs> you don't really feel it, do you? So the symptoms aren't visible. But the doctor says, if you don't watch your cholesterol, one day that could lead to a heart attack. It could lead to a stroke, even. And you might have got this diagnosis and thought, ah, oh, I'm still young. I'm just going to keep eating greasy food and fried chicken and all that sort of stuff. Or another example, you might be like me, and you're, you know, you're driving your car, and that little light pops up, and you're like, oh, it tells you you're low on fuel. Oh. And you think to yourself, oh, that light's just a warning. You know, I've got another 50 Ks in the tank. She'll be right. Another example, this might be touch on uh, someone's nerves here, but we're very aware of copyright infringement, aren't we? But we'll still choose to download and watch pirated content, tell ourselves, oh, we're not breaking the law. I'm a good citizen. Can you see what suppressing the truth might look like? We all know what it means. Paul here is saying that anger of God is upon those who suppress the truth about who he is. How do we know? How do we know who he is, though? How, how, do, how do some know who he is when, when they haven't heard about him or haven't been taught about God? Paul anticipates this, right, this question. He says, humanity is without excuse. God has revealed himself through his divine power and his attributes, Paul writes. In other words, look at the creation around you. Can't you see? Can't you see the majesty and the creativity of God through his created works? You know, I love this graphic that uh, Georgina um, contributed for this series. It's one of her original artworks. If you were to see one of uh, Georgie's artworks in real life on canvas, most of us would think, wow, the person who painted this is so talented. With art, right, people ask this question, oh, who painted this? I want to know the artist behind it. Don't we do that, right? That person deserves recognition. But you wouldn't look at a painting and, and think and conclude, well, I think there was a one in 100 billionth chance that there was a paintbrush that fell into some paint where different colors were accidentally mixed and then fell again onto a canvas and then this masterpiece was created. We don't think like that, do we? We know that there was a creator behind the painting, a designer, a painter, an artist. But isn't that what we do with the world around us? We, we look around at the world and, we, and many choose not to believe that there's an intelligent designer creator behind the creation. Instead, we're taught, aren't we, that it was through a series of random chance events. The Big Bang happened and the constants of nature, the speed of light, the strength of gravity, all this stuff has happened and perfectly aligned that the universe could contain life. We put our faith in a tiny chance of a bang happening that made the world to be what it is today. Now, there's a physicist in Oxford, Professor Edgar Andrews, and he says the universe represents a highly improbable arrangement of matter and energy and an extremely improbable arrangement by time and chance. This is a physicist in Oxford. He's saying this. The law of fundamental constants of nature uh, give every appearance of being fine-tuned to permit the existence of intelligent life on Earth. Basically, what he's saying that for the world to be what it is, there must be someone outside of it fine-tuning it, designing it, and, and so it could operate so perfectly. There's a reason why the universe hasn't collapsed on itself, because there's a great creator behind it who continues to uphold and sustain the universe. Now, what amazes me is that even back in Paul's day, right, uh, a couple thousand years ago, the world was so small. They didn't have the world of science like we do. 
The world was so limited what the human eye could see. We now, have, we now have telescopes and microscopes and we've sent people out into space and our knowledge has advanced to understand how our world operates. I'm a Christian and I, I see the world through a Christian lens and I'm thinking to myself, if we know so much more about the complexity and the beauty of our universe, shouldn't that mean even more so that there's got to be a creator behind it? Now, now I get that the, the non-religious scientists, uh, it might sound naive for me to say something like that, but the more answers we get, well, it actually shows me that there has got to be someone even more complex and far greater and unimaginably beautiful behind it. God's existence has been revealed through the natural world. That's what, that's what Paul is saying. Whether we know all the answers to science or whether we're the, we're the child that grows up in poverty in the slums, we look around the world and the creation, well, it screams God. His fingerprints are everywhere, but we choose to suppress that truth that is so plainly and naturally revealed to us in the created order. We suppress the truth that there is a creator God. So Paul says we're, we're without excuse. And so Paul alludes to the heart of sin here, doesn't he? That we will, this is what sin is, that we will reject and suppress the truth of God and instead of worshipping him, the creator, we exchange his glory, the glory that's deserving to him, to created things. We don't give his glory, we don't give him glory, and we instead, as humans, we put on the altar uh, of worship other things that we've created in our minds, in our hearts, by our hands. Simply, it's, it's idolatry. We worship idols. That God isn't on the throne of worship, but something else is. And so there's an um, author and pastor, Tim Kelly, he puts it this way. There is to, he puts it this way. He says, there has to be something which captures our imagination and our allegiance, which is the resting place of our deepest hopes, which we look to to calm our deepest fears. Whatever that thing is, we worship it, and so we serve it. It becomes our bottom line, the thing we cannot live without, defining and validating everything we do. What is that thing for you? That thing that defines and validates you, the thing that calms your deepest fears, is it God or is it something else? In Paul's pagan culture, people were worshipping statues, right, of, of humans, animals, beasts. Idolatry goes far deeper, though. It goes to the heart. When we choose to worship and serve at the center of our lives, uh, our relationships, our marriages, our families even, or our careers, our status, our finances, our investments, our cars and our houses, when we center our lives on them more than we center God, put God at the center, that's what idolatry looks like. We give glory to those things over God. We place and ascribe greatness to them, and they rule over us in our hearts. And while we can enjoy and love our family and our spouse and their good gifts and be thankful for our jobs and those opportunities that we have, the sin of our hearts is to make these good things ultimate in our lives. And what do we do? We exchange the glory of God the Creator for His created things. We make the good things into God things. It's so interesting because what we do as Christians even is that we will pick and choose the parts about God that we like and remove the parts that we don't. We don't like God being a God of judgment. We just want him to be one of love. We don't think God will disapprove of this aspect of my life. He's fine with me lying. He's fine with me being greedy. He's fine with me cheating, whatever. He's fine with me getting drunk, sleeping around, being selfish, whatever. When we do this, what are we doing? We create a God in our image, don't we? The God I believe in, he just wants me to be happy. And we shape God around our morality. Look, I've done all these great things. I, I help other people. Of course God loves me. What do we do? We rationalize God to be who we want him to be. And in doing so, the God that sits on the throne, the one that we read about in the Bible, isn't the God of the Bible anymore. 
the God on the throne, well, he actually looks a lot like me. This is what it looks like. We exchange the glory of God for things we've created and conjured up, even in our minds. And so for the religious or for the rebellious, can't you see? We all distance ourselves from the God of the Bible. We undo the created order. Instead of worshiping him as God, we worship the things he's created instead. That's the created order, right? We're supposed to be worshiping God, not created things. We turn things upside down and turned away from God. So doesn't God then, who created us, doesn't he have a right to be angry? Here in, here in verse 18 and 19 in, in chapter 1, to have this wrath against humanity who rejects him. And so verse 24, what do we hear? We move into the consequences of his wrath. It says, therefore, God gives us over to our passions and our lusts. It's repeated multiple times. He gives us over to the idols that we worship. And it's a funny thing, we don't think about that as punishment. We don't think about that as his, his anger being shown to us. But what do we do? We spend our life, you know, because we think, oh, I get to have a good life and God's happy with me because he gives me over to them. Well, that's actually his anger. You see, he, we'll spend our lives serving and, and putting Korea on the altar thinking it will satisfy. Yet, everyone knows here, when you put Korea at the center of your life, you, you end up enslaved to it, don't you? We'll spend our lives serving our vanity and we'll be so enslaved having to, to look beautiful and fit at all times and we'll feel the sorrow of getting old and wrinkly and less beautiful. We'll worship love sometimes and seek it out throughout all our lives, you know, swiping right, hoping that this guy or girl will give me the love that will fulfill me, but be so destroyed when the love that we hope for in the guy or girl leaves us heartbroken. Or fa we face the pain of, of, of our partner's um, unfaithfulness and infidelity. When we worship love, then, yeah, God gives us over to them, and we become enslaved to them. We forget that the judgment of God, his anger and wrath, is actually revealed today through the pain you and I feel when things don't go our way. Instead of this good life that we think exists, we find ourselves mentally, emotionally, physically broken. See, when we get rid of God, we end up as, uh, trapped in our idols. Now, while hell is going to be infinitely worse than this life, don't we all get a taste of hell in this lifetime when we experience and feel the brokenness and pain? I know I do. Man, I, I, life sucks sometimes. But maybe this is precisely God giving us over to our idols. You see, we see this in our society, don't we? No longer are we looking to God and his created order and rule that we live by. Instead, we look to our own created rules and order. Our progressive society, humanity now dictates what and how we should live, hoping that it will bring us fulfillment in life, trying to find an answer that isn't God. We'll look to our own devices. And Paul addresses one of those issues here. He brings up the topic of sexuality and the practice in particular of homosexuality as an example of how the world isn't the way God intended our creation. This is the elephant in the room, isn't it? And I want to address the Bible's view on this and how we as Christians should understand this passage here in Romans 1. But before I go on, I really do need to say this. I want to admit that the church doesn't have a great reputation and they haven't done well in expressing this Bible truth. There is bigotry. There has been hostility and abuse that is not at all right. It's wrong towards people in the LGBTIQ community, which is terribly sad and appalling. It has not been handled well. People have been bullied. They have been treated wrongly. And if this is you in this room or listening online, I'm so sorry that this is your experience. 
It sickened me this one time, made me furious, when I came across someone in Pitt Street Mall in Sydney who was doing this very thing, taking this very passage in Romans, putting it on a, writing it on a big picket fence sign, condemning and passing judgment on everyone who walked past. It made, I was so angry. They were yelling into this microphone, condemning people. They don't represent Jesus. But if I can also say something, this isn't a problem with God. This isn't a problem with even the church. This is a problem with people. Because there are people who aren't Christian, who aren't from the church, who are also bigots and also hostile and treat people of same-sex attraction in appalling ways. This is a problem with people. And sometimes those people are in churches, sometimes those people are in organizations, and sometimes those people are repping Jesus really badly. But I want to say something else, right? The Bible here is clear on this matter. The general public should be aware that Christians have this view. Christians who believe in the Bible have views on homosexuality that might not be in line with the general progressive society. This shouldn't surprise us. If we agreed with everything that the world said and everything that the world did, what would make us any different? What would make us followers of God? God calls us to be His people under His rule, living by His word. So my goal here isn't trying to make an excuse for what the Bible says. This is God's word. I believe it to be right and true, no matter how hard it is. But the first step is we need to admit and own this as Christians. It is an unavoidable truth that God does see homosexuality as a rejection of him. We can't deny that. I know this is spicy, but I want you to hear me out, though, even, even if you feel really uncomfortable right now. What is happening in the next part of this passage is Paul gives examples of how we strayed away from God, the creator, and his created order and how God has given us over to our lusts, right? It's in this context by which he discusses this topic of sex and homosexual activity. It's not the unforgivable sin. It's not some sin that is more condemning than others. Let's get that straight. He goes on to list out sins like gossip and slander, disobedience, disloyalty, and other things in that passage following. All our failures to worship God as he ought to be worshipped. All our sins and expressions of a sinful heart. But let's, let's, let's zoom in on this issue of sexuality because I think we all want to know answers to this. Let's read verse 24. Therefore, God gave them up in the lust of their hearts to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. All right, verse 24 and 25. Let me stop there first. God addresses impurity in sex. So this is a word really to everyone. Firstly, for the heterosexual who dabbles in promiscuous sex and porn and adultery, when we give ourselves over to sex before marriage as well, we dishonor the created order of what marriage and sex was designed for. Sex is a gift for the marriage bed. And pure sex looks like union and two flesh becoming one. Paul addresses sex, the impurity of sex as a whole. And this is something I want to actually talk about because I think in our generation, we allow our culture to tell us that sex is just sex. And so we seek the pleasure of sex, and before God, we give ourselves over to that instead of honoring Him. And it's so important to say this today, because I know as, as many of us in this room, we're, we're not yet married, many of us in this room, not yet married, I know it's a real struggle. I know it's a, a real temptation in our generation where sex is so normalized. Tinder is designed for quick hookups. Promiscu promiscuity is a badge of honor, and sex before marriage is something we just don't consider anymore as a sin or idolatry. Friends, let's take it seriously. This isn't about me being a prude or uncool because you 
choose to save sex. Instead, it's a beautiful gift. You get something even greater. You get to have sex in marriage, and that's such a beautiful gift that you get to give to your future spouse, your purity and your patience. So let me encourage you to reconsider. And sure, you might have gone all the way already. You might have already done it, but step back. You can redraw those boundaries and hold on to the purity for the marriage bed. God says this is what it looks like to worship and serve the, cre- the, the creature instead of the creator. But he continues on, verse 26. For this reason, God gave them up to dishonorable passions, for their women exchanged natural relations for those that are contrary to nature. And the men likewise gave up natural relations with women and were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed, committed shameless acts with men and receiving in themselves a due penalty for their error. So he continues to show specifically that homosexuality is one specific example of brokenness of humanity amongst others, a giving over to the passions and lusts in our sin. This is what the sex life of those who don't know or worship or follow God looks like. He's talking about the pagans here. It's contrary to the natural order in which God has created. Remember, think about the created order, how God created us, the natural order in which God has created. That's why he says natural and unnatural things here. God created men and women and sex. And so in his anger, God gives them over to their desires. Now, most of the time, the argument against would say, well, isn't this part of the Bible just outdated? It's irrelevant to our world today. That this Paul here was writing to an ancient cultural context where, where older men would sleep with slave boys. That's what happened in the Greek culture. But is he only calling out the playboys? Or is he addressing something that is for all generations in all cultures? Think about what he's saying. When you look at the historical timeline and, and homosexuality, even in the Bible, it's something that's been happening for generations. It's happened all the way back. There's reference to it in Genesis, even, the first book of the Bible, years and years before Paul's time. He's not just talking about the first century Middle East. What he's actually doing is using this as an example for what it looks like for us, again, to exchange the worship of God, to worship and give glory to other things. That's the context of what's being said. God's good design for sex has been skewed due to our sin. This isn't how God designed and created sex. Paul isn't just writing this for his culture and day. He's writing it and making it a reference to the beginning of creation, what was intended from the start. Now, some will take this passage out of context. There are, like I said earlier, people who make a big hoo-ha about homosexuality as if it's the greatest sin, you're condemned if you're, you know, all that sort of stuff. But what Paul is actually doing here is making a reference back to Genesis 1 and 2 and creation. Paul's a preacher, and he's preaching here. He's going back into history, explaining how God designed and created humanity, even sex itself. Now, I know this is very difficult to hear. Very difficult to hear in our generation. We all know someone who identifies as same-sex attracted, then there might be people in this room today who do. And so hearing that God has this view on homosexual activity and sin makes us feel very uncomfortable. Before you walk out the door, I think it's a good thing to understand this. This is something I believe, that I think it's actually a good thing that our society and workplaces do want to be inclusive. I think that's a good thing. I don't think it's a good idea to have to force their views onto everyone if you disagree, but I do understand that what our society is doing is trying to love those of the LGBTIQ movement. And somehow, we as the church have been painted with this broad brushstroke that we're the exclusive ones. We would kick anyone out whose sexuality isn't in line with the Bible. I don't agree with that. If we step back and we see the Bible, the Bible is actually calling all of us sinners. And it's calling for all of us to come into a relationship with him. If we were going to kick out 
the person whose sexuality is different to ours, then we should be kicking every one of us out of this room too because we are all sinful. Yet God invites us all into his family. Churches should be inclusive and welcoming to those who have different sexual orientation. And like everyone else, we need to hear the gospel. You see, there are two ways that a church can respond to this and that I think are unhelpful. The first way is we can dilute this and downplay this and dismiss it. That's not important anymore. The times have changed. It's not relevant. And what, by doing that, we dismiss this and we will dismiss other parts of the Bible that are irrelevant too. And the Bible doesn't, isn't our authority anymore. It's just choosing bits and pieces that we agree with, forming our own opinion of God that, uh, that makes us comfortable. Some churches do this. There are other churches who might take this, and like I said earlier, be hostile, self-righteous, claim it that it's more evil than others, and won't seek to love or welcome uh, people of same-sex attraction at all. I hope that we as a church can hold the truth of the Bible, and the truth of the Bible is that we will be a welcoming and loving community, and that those who walk through our doors need Jesus as much as we do. Paul is calling out sin as it is and and building a picture for how sin, the bad news, is why God's wrath is being revealed and why the way the world is how it is. But he's not saying be a bigot. He's not saying act self-righteous. He's not saying be offensive and hostile towards people who aren't heterosexual. And while God views homosexual activity this way, this is not a message just for those outside, the pagans. It's a message for those inside as well, for the church. It's for you and for me. You know, Eunice didn't get to read this, but in chapter 2, verse 1, I've got it on the screen for us. You can read in your Bibles as well. What does it say? Therefore, you, he's talking to the readers, you, the church, have no excuse, O man. Every one of you who judges, for in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. While the Romans and those who are Jewish are reading this thinking, yes, sounds like the pagan lifestyle. That's not, my, that's not me. The next verse, Paul says, no, that is actually you too. You are no different. You're in the same boat. This means for us, as we read this, the problem isn't out there with those pesky pagans. They're the sinners deserving of God's wrath. No. When we pass judgment, we condemn ourselves because we aren't any better. Your heart, my heart, we don't realize that we too are far from God. We've strayed away from Him. We've committed sin. And God sees our sins as much as He does the pagan. That none of us are perfect. We've all committed sin in our hearts where our hearts worship created things over the Creator. You see, the, cre- the, the, the greater problem isn't our sexuality. It's just one thing amongst others that we've, where we've turned for. And what we need to see in our hearts is that we've been created instead for things, not against it. We've been created for, for things, right? We've been created for faithfulness in marriage. We've been created for saving sex for marriage and the beauty and gift of sex in, in union and in covenant. But many of us have sinned and turned away from God in worshipping sex or porn or infidelity. Homosexuality is along that vein of thought that Paul brings us up. God wants us to be for these things as he created us. And so there's this long list where we have turned away. Verse 20 to 32, I won't read it again. But he lists out about how the pagans live. But that list is precisely what God's own people need to hear as well. You and I need to hear this. Paul isn't saying condemn pagans. He's writing this for God's covenant people, his church, you and I, to see that we are no different. Paul is condemning the sinner, yes, which is all of us. He's not pointing the finger at things happening over there, outside. He's looking at us. The hate, the the bitterness, the the envy, the pride, the selfishness, the greed, the judgmentalism, the impurity. We're all guilty. 
It's all there in our hearts. We're all capable of it. Sin has stained us, our minds, our bodies. The point of this passage isn't just to condemn homosexual practice. It's to look at ourselves as God's people and look at ourselves as God's church. How dare we? How dare we judge others and their sin when ourselves, we ourselves, are just as deserving of God's wrath and anger? We're all guilty. That is the bad news we have to own. The gospel should make us feel the weight of our sin. It should bring us to our knees in tears, knowing that we are so undeserving of God's love. We all stand guilty, regardless of our sexual orientation. You and I, we're guilty of sin and disobedience and rebellion. You and I, no matter how good your grades are, whatever university you got into, no matter how morally good you might think you are, we're all sinful before a holy and perfect God. And what has happened is our sin has distanced us. It's separated us from his love. Instead, we feel the result of his anger and wrath. So if you're listening to this, and you identify as someone who's same-sex attracted or oriented, know this, the sin or brokenness that God speaks of isn't unique to you. It's prevalent in all of humanity and it's expressed in a variety of forms. You don't need to feel excluded or think that you're different or, or worse off than everyone else. I don't want to, like, I'm not trying to downplay the real struggles you might feel and have gone through. You might feel shame that you have to keep it a secret, especially in a church community. But I, 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 don't, I hope you don't feel that. And I, I hope you know that you're not lesser than anyone else here before God and before this church family. The same goes for any other sexual sin. Come out, bring it to the light, and lay it before the foot of Jesus where forgiveness is found. We all need to remember what Paul says in verse 17. What I read earlier, sin has been dealt with. Righteousness is given to us by faith in Jesus, and it's his righteousness alone. It's by faith that we live our lives for God. Come to the cross of Christ, friends. We all need to come to the cross of Christ because it's a great leveler. We're all equal. Where we, whether we identify as heterosexual or, or part of the LGBTIQ movement, the gospel doesn't say that. In order to receive righteousness, you have to be better. It doesn't say that. It says you and I receive righteousness by faith in Jesus and his saving work at the cross. You don't have to prove your worth to be saved. We're all in need of the gospel, friends. It's only by faith in Jesus that we're saved. So what do we do with all this information? I think verse 25 tells us we will stop suppressing the truth of who God is and praise God as God, won't we? To depend on him and accept his rule, Jesus is king. Do we desire him to reign over us more than the created things that rule our hearts? Will we follow Jesus, repenting of sin and seeking to obey him? We'll only be empowered to do so, joyful to make sacrifices, see the worth and value of it when we know the good news. Jesus has dealt with our sin. He's dealt with our brokenness, that he gives us completeness and wholeness that the world, our idols, simply can't offer us. He makes us fully human fully whole. And you see, when you meet Jesus, you'll realize our identity isn't our sexuality. And this is something I, I want to talk about. Uh, and I want to be respectful as I do this because, you know, this is going to be at the risk of sounding naive, but I don't, I don't have all the answers. And, and the more I'm learning about this, the more I, I see that there is uh, a lot going for the whole, uh, the biological reasons behind our sexuality that it's something that people are born with, right? There's a lot of research going on right now in the last 20 years especially uh, about this. Uh, it's in our pop songs today, Lady Gaga, she sings that song, um, Born This Way. 
Macklemore sings about it in that song, Same Love, where the lyrics go, I can't change even if I tried, even if I wanted to. Right? Macklemore sings about this too. See, what I'm understanding is that there's this involuntary disposition, right, to same-sex attraction. It's both, it's both nature and nurture. And while that might be true, will it be what defines our humanity? Does our sexual orientation mean does, that mean, does that mean that's who we are? Why, why has our sexual, sexuality become so weaved into our identity? Uh, and the more I understand, the more I, I, it's, it's reason why I, can, I, I get it, because I know for some, the, especially those of same-sex attraction, over the years, they, they've had this source of grief and pain that they've been holding on to. I can't imagine how hard it would be. Like, you might want to fit in, but there's this dilemma. You recognize, hey, you're not like other people. Uh, you feel different. And there's this identity crisis that many of same-sex orientation feel. And when they come out, they, there's all this, uh, the sudden this feeling, this huge weight has been lifted. They're able to embrace their sexuality without shame. And because that is so freeing, it becomes what makes you, you. I get that. I'm, well, I'm, I'm learning that, at least. So much so that once I, I come out and I embrace it, I can finally be fulfilled. This is my identity. And what we've done is we, we've attached the idea of fulfillment to who we are, this identity, how I express my sexuality completely. Now, I know this might be simplifying it, and I, yeah, I might be sounding naive, and I might be naive. While I do believe it's helpful for people uh, to own it and acknowledge it and come out, I do think it's helpful for you to, 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 to own who you are uh, and how you feel, at least. Could I suggest that the identity we form around our sexuality might actually be more limiting? then it is freeing. See, when we come to the gospel, there's actually a greater vision and identity for you and I. When you come to Jesus, does Jesus see you and put you into the category, category of homosexual and heterosexual? Does he see, my, oh, Mikey's heterosexual, you go in this category. He doesn't, does he? God doesn't define us by our behavior and sexual orientation. That isn't our identity. It can't be our identity. We can't simply limit our identity on our sexuality because we're so much more than our sexual orientation but rather see in the gospel before God our identity as being human as God created us in his image with dignity and integrity, yet at the same time, because of sin, that that image has been broken. Broken like this image, this tapestry. But you know, when we come to the gospel, we're redeemed by Jesus. His cross, his death, his resurrection, the gospel, it redeems our brokenness. So the grace of God, he frees us from our sin and we've been given new hope and a new identity, a greater identity, an even better one than anything that the world can give us, can label us with. We've become loved, redeemed children of God. Now, redemption doesn't mean our struggles in this life will magically disappear. You and I will struggle with our brokenness for the rest of our lives, perhaps. Whether you're heterosexual or homosexual, you might struggle with sin. You will struggle with sin, 100%, for the rest of your life while we live in the sin-stained world. But when you come to Christ in faith, I promise you, there's a greater sense of wholeness when you embrace this deeper identity before God. You will know a love far greater than the world can offer, an identity that is truly fulfilling in the God who knows you and loves you deeply. But lastly for us, man, I'm sweating. The church, will we love and walk with those who are far from God? The church, let's, let's, let's really think about this. Will we love those who are broken and hurting? Will we see that the, the love that has been extended to you and me, the forgiveness in Jesus is the same offer that is for everyone? It's a simple application, isn't it, for us to consider. 
God loves His creation and calls us to come home. The moral and the immoral. We all have sin. We're undeserving of God's love, yet God welcomed us home. He gives us a seat at His table in grace and love and mercy. Will we extend that hospitality, that same love to those who are lost and looking for truth and fulfillment and wholeness that can only be found in Jesus? Church, will we love? Let me finish with some good news. Romans doesn't end here in chapter 1. He doesn't leave us in our mess. God doesn't leave us in our mess. He wants us to keep reading and hearing from him that it doesn't end with just sin and wrath. That is the bad news. The bad news is going to continue into chapter 2 as well. But the good news is Jesus reached out to us in love. When we, when we couldn't save ourselves, he dealt with God's wrath, his anger on our behalf at the cross. He took on God's wrath so that we could receive righteousness by faith. That, friends, is good news. It's great news. But you're going to have to come in future weeks to find out more. I want to give you a couple of resources to think about. If you want to read up more on this stuff that's helped me, I actually gave a friend a call in Sydney who works for this, this um, organization. I've got a screenshot. Livingfaith.online. Go to the website. His name is Sam Wen. You can get his contact through the website, I think, and you call him up. Uh, a friend of mine in Sydney who works for this organization, helping churches uh, think through how to love and also helping those of same-sex uh, people of the LGBTIQ movement uh, to consider what it looks like um, being a Christian, but also how God views it as well. So this is an organization specifically um, designed to help uh, those who are same-sex attracted and others. Really helpful resource. Get onto their website if you want to find out more. There's a few books I want to recommend. There's, uh, the first one is um, by Sam Albury. You can look this up at your, your, the, the Christian bookstores out there. It's, it's called Is God Anti-Gay? Very straightforward. You know what the book's about now. <laughs> That's the title of the book. Go read it. This is a good one. This is uh, Gay Girl, Good God, Jackie Hill Perry. She shares her testimony. She shares her story about how um, she grew up uh, same-sex attracted and how that changed the more she met Jesus or how she was empowered uh, to be a Christian and to live for Jesus. So that was, that was a really helpful book, really uh, interesting to, to, to read as well. Uh, there are a couple more. Uh, an- another good one. I'm just going to recommend one more. Uh, Ed Shaw. The plausibility problem. The plausibility problem. So Ed Shaw himself identifies as same-sex attracted. He's a Christian minister uh, in the UK, and he writes about, um, writes about this. A few books uh, that I want to recommend and, and resources to go find out more. What I want to do is I'm going to invite the music team up here now. I want to pray. I want to pray for us as a church. I want to pray uh, about this, this idea of sin in our lives. But you know what I want to do? I want to give you guys just 30 seconds like we did earlier, as Jeff gave us moments to reflect and uh, on Thanksgiving, thankful points. I want to give you 30 seconds, perhaps, or a bit more, uh, as, as, as the team plays a bit of background music for us. I want to give you 30 seconds to, to maybe confess your sin before God, to come before God needy, knowing that we need His forgiveness for our sin. So I'll give you a few moments to do that in your heart, in your quiet time, in this quiet time now, and then I'm going to finish off in prayer. Let's pray.
Father, help us to acknowledge our sin, that we have hurt you, we've offended you, we've rejected you, we've given glory to all the wrong things. Our hearts have manufactured idols that we give worship to over giving worship to you. Help us to see you for who you are, our God and our Creator, the lover of our souls, worthy of worship. As we sit with our sin, show us too the hope that comes from you, the salvation that comes through faith in Christ, that we can know your love and forgiveness, even though we are undeserving of it. Open our eyes to this truth, that we can be saved from the brokenness of this world through faith in Jesus and Him alone. Help us to see the good news and to accept that this good news is for all of us, regardless of how far we've strayed from you. Father, thank you for Jesus. It's in his name we pray. Amen. I'm going to invite you guys to stand. We're going to sing our response song now.